Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooldop Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Professor Robin Banerjee is the head of School of Psychology at the University of Sussex. He first arrived at the university as an undergraduate and stayed on to complete his doctoral studies on the topic of social, cognitive, motivational and emotional aspects of self-presentation in childhood. He went on to serve at the British Academy as a postdoctoral fellow, took up the position of lecturer in psychology in 2002, progressing to his current position of Professor of Developmental Psychology. Robin took on his university leadership role as head of school in August 2019. He leads the CRESS Research Lab, which conducts investigations of children's social and emotional functioning and works closely with practitioners and policymakers in the areas of education and mental health. Welcome, Robin. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Cathy. Well, thank you for coming on. When we researched this podcast, you're so prolific in your research publications. It was so hard to choose what to actually ask you about. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. I mean, I do get interested in stuff and, you know, things come along and I think, oh, that's really interesting. Oh, that's really interesting. I just get stuck into it. It's really fun. Well, what I'd really like to begin with, I want to talk about your work on transition. I am also very interested in transition and in mental health initiatives, both in school and on point of exit from school into university. Can we just sort of chew the fat on that and just sort of share our interest and and hear what work you've done in that area? Sure, that would be really great. I mean, transitions are interesting times, aren't they? Just by their very nature, because it's all about change and it's all about dealing with change. And there's a lot of emotion tied up with that because there's excitement, but there's also challenge as well. There's a lot of tension that can come from the uncertainty, not knowing what you're going into and uh, the strain around being in a new environment. And we know from other work that I've done with other people in the mental health field that The transition in particular from school to university or college can be quite challenging for today's young people. And that seems to be reflected in some of the, you know, the mental health data. I think people are paying much greater attention to mental health at the point of transition. But what specific projects have you done in that area? So this is actually something we're doing right now. So we're running a project called Situate, which is all about transition into higher education. And it involves survey work. We're doing this work very much. So it's based at the University of Sussex, but it's very much in partnership with the Mental Health Foundation. So it involves survey work to really understand the needs that are out there in terms of a young people's experience transitioning into higher education, but it's also about action as well. And so it's about creating ambassadors for well-being and mental health among the students themselves. So there's very much a kind of a peer support approach to it. And there certainly seems to be that idea of peer-to-peer mental health initiatives. It's really gaining traction, isn't it? 
It really is. And it's because peer relationships really matter. I mean, you know, most of my work has been with uh, children and young people earlier in their uh, developmental lifespan. So uh, really from three to 16. And it's kind of during that during that period are many different transitions as well. But what you see again and again and again is that peers really matter. The people that we interact with on a daily basis who are our same age, who are going through similar kinds of things, at least on the surface, those interactions, those relationships really matter. And quite often they get neglected. We tend not to pay so much attention to them because perhaps not surprisingly, as adults working in the education system, we kind of take an adult-centric view. We think about how are the young people when they're with us. But what I found in my research is that actually paying attention to what's going on in the peer group is really important. Paying attention to how young people are interacting with those around them, the same age group, that actually gives us like a window onto their mental health and functioning. And to be honest, Kathy, it's like, it's the same for us, right? As adults, when we think about what makes a difference to our mental health and well-being, it's the interactions that we have with our peers, the people around us every day. I'm interested in your views in general, young people's resilience today. Yeah. First of all, that seems to be a word that's become increasingly contested. I personally still like it. I think yeah. it's still a useful term. Definitely. But I think that there's a general kind of interest in whether or not young people are less resilient than they used to be. And I think one of the messages that certainly came out of an interview that I did with Professor Siobhan O'Neill at the University of Ulster was that overprotective parenting could be contributing to potentially less resilience demonstrated on point of exit and entry into university, that we're sort of molly-cuddling our children potentially a little bit too much these days. And I was just wondering what your view was on that. So... I get where you're coming from with that. I I can understand people feeling like maybe we're becoming more risk averse. We're very much sort of wrapping kids up in cotton wool and just doing everything we can to protect them. And that actually that somehow makes them less tough, less gritty, less able to cope with the demands of life. To be honest, Kathy, I think that's probably an oversimplification and in some cases, wildly inaccurate as well, because I think in many ways, young people have an incredible amount of resilience, incredible amount of grit in terms of dealing with all sorts of challenges. It's just that the social dimensions are now different than they were before. And, you know, psychologists are not actually that brilliant at history, in my opinion. We don't pay very much attention to historical trends. And that's why I really try to take an interdisciplinary approach in my work, to really work with people who are looking at it from lots of different angles. We've got to recognize that whatever we're dealing with now is a moment in time. And we have to understand that moment in time. And I guess my take on it is that if we characterize resilience as being something which is just sort of residing inside the head of an individual child, that's when we begin to make mistakes. That's when we begin to say, oh, well, today's young people are less resilient than they used to be. And I think the mistake about that is that resilience isn't simply a property of the child. Resilience is actually a quality of an entire social structure. Resilience, if you like, 
isn't simply some disposition on the part of the young person. It's actually a social process as well. Resilience is as much about the social structures that support the young person as it is about some sort of a personality feature of the young person. So I think my take on it is that young people are adapting to the social context in which they find themselves. There are definitely challenges there, but I've seen young people work through the most incredible adversities in really powerful way, being really street smart about how they deal with it, it's just that the social structures, social expectations, social demands are different. And also, we could be paying attention to the architecture or the structural architecture of resilience around them. Exactly. And thinking about how can we provide optimal conditions at home and school? What can we do, you know, in terms of the context and improving the context and improving the quality of relationships that we have with young people rather than sort of expecting them to magically, you know, have all these resilient habits and ways of thinking? Exactly. And that is so true, Kathy. And it, it just it makes me feel like that is absolutely the heart of what we're talking about when we're uh, looking at mental health in schools as well, because so often the approach, it, it sort of turns into a who has got problems, let's identify the kids who've got difficulties or are at risk for mental health problems, and then sort of pluck them out of their existing setup, get some clinical support or therapy or some sort of expert to fix them, basically, and then put them back in. And I just think that is completely misreading the situation because, again, it's the same thing what I was saying before. Mental health isn't just a property of that individual child as if it sort of resides in a silo inside that child's head. It's actually the relational network that needs to be the unit of analysis. What's happening around that one young person? What's happening in the social system? in which that young person is embedded. And so that's where we need to understand mental health. Of course, the child or the young person is in it, but it's not just them in isolation. We have to understand the whole picture. And so, you know, when I do work on mental health in schools, it's very much about understanding what school is like, not just about figuring out who are the problem kids. And most certainly focusing on on school climate, school culture. You know, these children are operating, as you say, within that relational matrix. And also they are products of an environment. For sure. For sure. And I mean, the thing is, right, we all know this because every single time you walk into a school and, you know, this is what happens when schools have open, you know, think about the classic transition, right? from primary to secondary schools. You've got parents traipsing around different schools with their kids trying to get a feel for it. But listen to what I just said, trying to get a feel for it. Oh, feel for what? Well, what's happening is every time you go into the different schools, you're trying to pick up on that sort of intangible quality of what is this school like? But those things, rather than just being peripheral, actually, to my mind, are really central. What makes it feel right? And in my opinion, a large part of that is to do with relationships. A large part of it is to do with emotional health and well-being. And we pick up on it intuitively, but I think the mistake we make in policy terms is that we don't give enough attention to it. And quite frankly, I never go to open evenings for new schools because instead I pick up the phone 
and I find out how parents feel, how pupils have felt, you know, at particular transition points. I ask if teachers receive CPD training, if they're invested in, the, if, if the school invests in their mental health and well-being. Those are much more meaningful questions when you're trying to find out what kind of setting your child's going to be in. Exactly. That's what you're asking, right? What kind of a setting? Because in, in the end, it's always about the goodness of fit between the young person and the environment, right? It's the same for all of us. We can't think about ourselves as if we're kind of in isolation in some sort of a, a world which is completely flat, where there's no kind of values. Stuff just happens. Actually, stuff doesn't just happen. We're in a world which is emotionally laden, where there's all kinds of values that not only what we have, but all the people around us. And we need to understand what those are like, because those influence what your experiences are going to be. And so, of course, there are going to be situations where you say, okay, this young person really does need to develop some skills, or this young person really does have some qualities which are going to make it difficult for them to adapt to any environment. They do need some intense support. Maybe it is going to be individual therapy. There's obviously going to be a place for that for uh, particular individuals. But my point is that we always have to look at that as being part of what we're doing here, not the entirety. We have to look at the overall context as well. And, and I think the same is true, going back to your first point, in the transition to higher education as well. And you know, we're spending a long time trying to think about how do we create an environment at university which feels right and which does what it needs to do in order to support the mental health and well-being and indeed resilience of all the people who are transitioning into that environment. Would you agree? I've always looked at transition through the lens of identity. I think any little transition can spark a little mini identity crisis, you know, and and even moving house or a relationship changing or moving into a new school, it suddenly the self has to be recalibrated, doesn't it? There's a question of who am I now? How do others view me in this setting? And I think it's a very useful lens through which parents and educators can understand transition. Because if we can educate people around what are the protective assets, you know, that exist within these environments and try and amplify them, but always keeping our eye on how that child sees themselves. Absolutely. That is such a good point, Kathy. And, you know, the interesting thing about that is it chimes really well with the social dimension as well, because a big part of our identity is based on our connections with other people, right? It's about how other people see us, how we compare to other people. Social comparison is hugely important as well. So if you were to think about how the self changes when very young children first come into a big school, as it were, right? When they, f- they first move into primary school, one of the big things that's happening there is that there's growing attention to the world of the peer group and social comparison with others becomes important. And young people begin to define themselves in relation to the peer groups. And that just increases over time, right? So by the time they get to the end of primary school, there's a really strong focus on your public image, your, what you might call your public identity or your public face. And that's a really important part of who you are because it's who you are when you're with other people, who you are in comparison with other people, who you are in terms of how other people see you. That's a very human thing that we all do. And that continues all the way through. So I think you're right about identity being an absolute key issue. 
the social connections make a difference to your private sense of self as well. Those two become really tightly connected with each other. And that's precisely why transition is hard, because there's uncertainty about what that social group is going to be like. How am I going to be viewed by the other people there? How am I going to be viewed by the staff, by the peers? How am I going to compare with the other kids? Those are all the things which young people are having to sort out. And that is quite stressful. And also they're terribly conscious of impression management. And also I was speaking to a little 10-year-old recently who was worried about going to secondary school. And he said, I'm really worried about whether or not I can be myself. Do I have to be someone else? I mean, that's classic, isn't it? Yeah. And, you know, one of the interesting things, actually, we published a paper just last year on the transition into secondary school where we focused on theory of mind. So the understanding of mental states, understanding how feelings, beliefs, desires work, how they relate to behavior, that's sort of a social cognition, if you like, tuning into our own and other people's minds. And what we were able to show was that young people who had a better understanding of those things, a better ability to tune into the mind and how minds work, those young people were less likely to experience social anxiety during that transition in that first year of secondary school. And as a consequence, actually, it seemed pretty clear that they were displaying more positive peer relationships as well. So it's quite interesting to think about the cycle between what's going on in a young person's head, how much they really are able to tune into all of these different perspectives, and how that connects with the relationships they form. And it comes down to it comes down to that question that you, you're kind of picking up on from that 10-year-old, which is, can I be myself? What I would say is, absolutely, you can, but everyone is calibrating together. It's not like you're the only one wondering about that. And I think that's one of the things that you get from perspective taking, right? You recognize that you're all in the same, of course, you all have different circumstances, right? You've all got a unique life story, but you're all doing that same exercise of calibrating who you are and how you're going to be in this environment. And just understanding that, I think, is a really big plus. The other thing that I managed to say to him, which he found quite helpful, is that he has agency in the situation. So once we chatted about how he felt and his identity and whether or not if he was himself, he'd be bullied or if he could just be himself proudly. Beyond that, we started talking about the agency that he could have in the situation. How could he make other people feel better on the first day of school? How could he cultivate friendships? So I think there is a great role for empowering little 10, 11-year-olds to think about what they can bring, how they can influence those situations for others. I think that's a really, really important message, because if it becomes a complete preoccupation with yourself and what are other people going to think about me, actually that can sometimes sort of freeze you in, in a state of inertia. And you're so preoccupied with how you're coming across that you're not kind of looking up and looking around you and thinking, actually, how can I make a difference to other people? And, you know, it's a delicate balance, right? Because we do need to look after ourselves. But one of the really interesting paradoxes in psychology and social psychology, actually, is that the more we tend to focus on connecting with other people, supporting other people, the more we have that kind of other focused orientation, 
you know, paradoxically, you end up with stronger benefits for yourself. Your own well-being gets boosted. And that's why, you know, one of, one of the other themes in my work is kindness. And a lot of the work that I focused on in relation to kindness kind of shows that, that by engaging with other people in that supportive way, by paying attention to other people in just the way you were describing, Kathy, that was really great advice. What you can do to act as an agent to promote positive experiences for other people, actually, all of that is likely to be beneficial, not just for those other people who are receiving that kindness, but also for you. Well, the first time I recognized that dynamic was in prison research, because I'm a criminologist, and I recognized that prisoners who became the agent in that environment, the ones who could help others, comfort others, you know, be the prison buddy, the prison listener, they had much higher self-esteem. And I started to pay attention to that dynamic and recognize that they felt in an extreme environment of total disempowerment, they found power and agency again in altruism. And that's where I sort of first recognized that. That's so powerful, Kathy. I mean, just thinking through that, it feels like being able to reach out to other people actually does something very important in terms of strengthening that resilience of the relational network, doesn't it? Maybe that's the way it works. I mean, this is stuff that I'm still very much trying to work through and trying to think through in my own head, but it feels to me like this connects us right back to what we started talking about, about uh, resilience not being just inside the child, but in that relational network. So it stands to reason, doesn't it, Kathy? Am I making sense with this? That if you invest in those relationships, it's gonna come back to you in spades. Absolutely. And you feel, I think children can often feel disempowered at the point of transition, but actually I think children enjoy being able to influence others in a positive way. They are intrinsically altruistic. And I think we just need to sort of activate that really. That's a really interesting idea, isn't it? And I suppose the the one challenging question, right, which I'm still trying to figure out is what gets in the way of that, right? What is stopping that tendency to kindness, that inclination to be altruistic, what is getting in the way from activating that? And okay, here's where I'm thinking about it. So I'm kind of just trying to piece different things together. But where I am on it is that this is fundamentally about how we define being successful. And I think this is a huge issue in education, right? What does it mean to be successful? Now, on one level, it it could be very much focused on what many people would regard as a core business of uh, schools, which is kind of academic standards. So it could be easily defined by many people in terms of academic success, achieving good results for yourself in your exams, for example. Now, talk to young people about what the quality of their everyday lives is like at school, and you realize, of course, it's certainly not just about the academic context, it's the social context as well. Social dimensions are really important, like we've been saying. But even within that, I feel like we've got a job to do in terms of some tensions around what does success mean? Because I think one of the things that I've certainly learned from my research is that something getting in the way of the altruism, of the kindness, of the support to others, is the definition of social success in terms of dominance and power. And that, to me, is like really essential consideration for us. Because if young people's definition of social success is having high visibility, being dominant, 
getting other people to do what you want them to do, having power, then that leads to a fundamentally different kind of social interaction. And it might seem like you're achieving success in those areas if you are getting lots of visibility and you are influencing other people's behavior and other people are doing what you want to do and you do have the limelight. But I don't think that's the investment in relationships which has the genuine payoffs in terms of self-esteem and well-being. It feels to me like that sort of search for dominance and power in the social situation is different from the success that you were describing in the prison. But also, I think culturally, we seem to be so invested in narcissism in order to improve our mental health, when actually the opposite is true. And people are always taken aback when I say, they might say, my child has low self-esteem, my teenager has low self-esteem, and I'm actually always encouraging them to get him to do something for someone else and to measure the impact of that. So instead of telling you know young people to have a hot bath and to to do things that invest in their own happiness, I think, and on a societal level and a cultural level, we need to to really, as you say, value you know the quality of encouraging others, being kind to others, and seeing that as part and parcel of the definition of being a successful person. I think that's so good. I'm totally on, on the same page as you, Kathy. I think you've expressed it beautifully. And it's hard, right? Because I think a lot of things in our society, this goes back to what I was saying about, you know, resilience being a social process, right? A lot of things in our society, when you start to think about it, don't really activate that way of thinking. So if you if you were to ask, well, anyone, I mean, not just young people, if you were to ask adults, whoever, if you were to ask them who is really successful out there, I don't know. I mean, I suppose that they probably would turn to something that is probably based more on that, what you called narcissistic kind of model, right? It'd be someone who's got the right look, is very much in the limelight, has the right image, probably has lots of money, is famous, right? It's all the things which are like about them. And we wouldn't be paying so much attention to the people who are doing good for others. We wouldn't necessarily say those are really successful people. So to me, we've got a really fundamental rethink that we need to do in our whole society, which is about what does success actually look like? And that's tough, right? Because I think maybe that's where we're being misled. If, if we're being guided to think of success as being basically all about achieving good things for yourself, then we miss all those magical things that you just talked about, about how actually the good things for yourself arise not from putting a lot onto what can I get, but it's actually the opposite. It's transcending yourself, going beyond yourself and looking outwards and working with others. I think the pandemic may potentially have really refocused the mind on the value of altruism for, you know, our our own personal self-esteem. And I think that sense of community cohesion may have benefited that sort of sense of self-worth, self-esteem, belonging. So I'm just imagining that we have tried, we're trying to get some traction to the idea of paying more attention and, and placing more value on the importance of kindness for us collectively. Would you agree? I think so, because there are lots and lots of examples over the past sort of 13 or 14 months of this pandemic, where we have really celebrated 
some stunning acts of kindness, right? And sometimes they're really, really big things, and sometimes they're really tiny things. I mean, things that you might do just to, I don't know, help out your neighbors. Even the small things, we're picking up on that. And I think you're right that we're now asking the question about actually what really matters, what really counts. I guess the one thing that's holding me back a little bit from being too optimistic about it is how much of that will be lasting. And, you know, that's, I I think for all of us working in different policy areas, I think that's one of the biggest challenges. Like, how do we make sure that we sustain that focus on kindness and supporting other people, as opposed to sliding back into a me, me, me kind of an approach? And the other thing is people's relationship with digital technology has completely transformed, you know, what we're, it's just disrupted many of the mechanisms that we've described. So I think that whereas we might be slightly kinder offline, that certainly may not be reflected in online relationships, which of course, young people are trying to navigate so rapidly within their school relationships. And I think it's it's become really, really a difficult area, hasn't it? It really has. And, you know, we've, I mean, yeah, we've all been in this kind of insane environment about having to navigate all of these new ways of connecting with each other, all these uh, new platforms. Uh, well, actually, I mean, isn't it amazing though, really? It, it is hard to navigate all of the new demands of uh, this digital world. But thank goodness that we've had those because otherwise we really would have been shut off in unimaginable ways. So it's been, in many cases, literally a lifesaver for us. How we actually navigate those digital communications, I think, is an ongoing challenge. And it's it's stuff that we're still trying to get to grips with. And the pace of change is so fast that I'm sure this is, you know, it's not like it's something that we just get used to and then it stops and that becomes a new norm. I think there's going to be a whole lot of learning over the coming months and years, actually, around how we engage with each other online. And that's going to be fascinating. It's going to be really interesting to think about how we do that. I was going to say, literally just yesterday, I was working with my PhD student, Marusha Levstek, on a paper which we're just about to submit for publication, focused on how young people have engaged with music making in ensembles through online platforms. And it was absolutely fascinating because actually there were really powerful ways in which young people engaged in different music groups did connect with each other, even though they couldn't, in many cases, couldn't play at the same time in a very easily, they couldn't hear each other play as an ensemble very easily. Actually, music making during the pandemic did happen through digital platforms and did serve a really important purpose in terms of meeting young people's basic psychological needs, including some of those social dimensions. Obviously, it's not the same, but they did make strong social connections, which kept those bonds alive for them. And I think that was hugely important. So digital can really be strong. It's quite counterintuitive and it may be quite distasteful for parents to recognize, but actually those digital connections served young people extremely well over the pandemic. Well, yeah, I mean, there's no doubt about it. It's not the same, right? No one could pretend that being in touch with each other through video conferencing would be the same as interacting in person. 
But like you said, Kathy, there were some really big positives, which is why actually one of the biggest issues is that this has thrown into sharp relief the whole point of socioeconomic disadvantage, because we know that some young people are in an environment where there is, um, how would you call it, digital poverty, right? Where actually the ability to make those strong connections online was also much more restricted, much more limited because they didn't have the tools, they didn't have the technology. And that means that they were kind of doubly cut off because they were cut off in terms of the in-person interaction and cut off from the online support that could be provided and that so many other people depended on. Absolutely, absolutely. That's a, a brilliant point. I'm, I'm conscious I only have 10 minutes of your precious time and I'm desperate to ask you about materialism. I know you've done some work on materialism, I understand. Yeah. And one of the questions I'm always asked by parents is, how do I stop my child being spoiled? And I just wondered, maybe we could think about, you know, uh, tying together what you know about materialism and potentially that question. Well, you know what? It does tie in really well because materialism connects with all the things I was saying about the definition of success. And we found this again and again and again. Young people will often turn to material success. It's sort of tied up with body image as well. So it's about looking good, having the right stuff, making sure that you've got all the latest gadgets and also getting the really desirable kind of physical appearance as well. All of that is often linked to social success. And people believe, and I think this is not just about children and young people, this is all of us. We all believe that somehow these qualities are tied up with what it means to be popular, what it means to be accepted socially. And there's some truth to that, but it's much, much more nuanced. Because like I was saying before, the thing that really makes a difference to the quality of your relationships isn't any of that stuff. The thing that really makes a difference to the quality of your relationships is the pro-social behavior, the kindness, the altruism, the caring and compassion for others. Those are the things that we all notice, right? At the end of the day, it's not rocket science. We want to be around people who are nice, right? Who are kind, who are supportive. However, I think that materialism is one of those things that gets in the way. You know, we were talking about, you know, activating the altruism. I think this is one of the things that gets in the way of it because the materialism, that material success, the the perfect body, the perfect image, having the right stuff, all of that is tied up with our sense of what it means to be successful. And it is kind of part of our social construction of popularity, but it's not the same as investing in relationships. And, And we've shown that in our research that actually you can get some really vicious cycles where young people who are experiencing difficulties in their peer groups are increasingly likely to turn to material products and physical appearance as being the root out of it. And actually that makes total sense in terms of social constructions of popularity, except it just doesn't work. That is not gonna be the root to long-term relational success, because the route to long-term relational success is much quieter than that. It's just about having the skills to be able to engage with other people in a pro-social way. So I think that's a, you know, it's a perfect illustration of what we were discussing before regarding what does success really look like. I'm reminded of, you know, we've all been guilty of it as parents, there's a parental anxiety over whether or not your child will be 
popular and you sort of jump to buy them the best football yeah. boots because you know that that's going to give them a few little brownie points and the, the popularity sticks. Oh, trust and I think me, can, I've been there with my kids. Yeah, yeah. The, the parental anxiety can really feed into that. We can be part and parcel of the problem a little bit there. Oh, there's no doubt about it. And, you know, I'm really interested in looking at this cross-culturally. I think it's really fascinating to see whether this is something which is specific to particular cultures, particular countries, right? What's the national appetite for this kind of stuff? And I think there is real variation here. That desire to find success or to promote success for our children, and I put success in quotation marks, okay, but to promote that success for our children by getting them the latest stuff, by saying, oh, if they have this, then they'll fit in more or they're going to get some kudos among their friends. I totally get it, right? But it is a social construction. And that's something that we can be empowered about, you know? And I think one of the things that we've got to work out is, it's, it's almost like having a national conversation. It's like, do we like that? Is that the way we want our society to be? Is that really the way we want success to be constructed? Because, you know, it's not like it has to be like that. That's just the way our society has developed. That's how we've constructed success. And that's the environment that we've created that our young people are coming into. So could we have a different construction of social success? And this is where, you know, it goes way beyond psychology, doesn't it? This is where you really need that interdisciplinary focus. You need to bring really good people together to try and work through what would you do in policy terms? What, you know, practically speaking, what could you do? But to my mind, at least talking about it and recognizing the problem would be a really important starting point. And I think that there is something that comes together in a perfect storm at the point of transition into secondary settings where the parents might buy their child a smartphone to fit in, where they might try and, you know, encourage their children to behave in particular ways, to get on with other people, rather than rather than investing in their sense of self and in resisting parental pressure to buy their child the best phone. Or, you know, so I think that we all have a role to play in giving our children the confidence to be themselves and to be resistant to some of those bigger cultural powerful, persuasive narratives around what we value. Yeah, but it's a big ask, isn't it? That, that's a really difficult one. So, you know, for an individual young person to kind of shoulder all of that is really hard. It's got to be a collective effort. And that's why actually the social values of the systems in which young people are embedded have got to be important. And that's why I feel like when you think about school culture, Actually, we've got to pay attention to this stuff. It really matters because it's making the difference in terms of what kind of a, what's the word? It's like, what kind of a discourse are we bringing young people into? What's the kind of conversation that we want to have? And if our focus in schools is like, well, never mind all of that, you know, that, that's, that's for you to sort out at home or that's for you to sort out outside the school gates. What we're going to focus on right now is, you know, the math syllabus or the history syllabus. I feel like we're going to be missing a really important chance. And I feel the other thing is that paying attention to that kind of stuff isn't really like taking away from the academic work, taking away from all the busy stuff that schools have to get through in terms of education. It's part of it, right? Education and learning, all those things are really social enterprises as well. Children aren't just learning in a vacuum by themselves. They're doing it within a relational network. 
And so the people in that network really matter and their values really matter and how they interact with the young people in that math lesson or in that history lesson, they really do matter. So I think it's definitely well worth investing the time to really think about what kind of an environment are we creating for the next generation. I always love to remind educators and school leaders and parents that the small stuff makes a massive difference. The, the quality of the language that you use, the type of words that we use in conversations with a child in a corridor or in the car, they really matter. What messages are we giving our children on a day-to-day basis? So I think that the adults need to get their house in order and think about what we're aiming for and stop presenting young people potentially with terribly mixed messages. That is so true. Uh, The small stuff really matters. So going back to what we started talking about at the very beginning when we were saying about mental health and resilience and transition times, so often that can appear in school settings as a very discrete project or a discrete program of work. It might be something that you do specifically in PSHE, you know, personal, social and health education in schools. It might be something that you do specifically as part of a a new curriculum to promote social and emotional skills. And there's some really great stuff out there. Okay, so it's not knocking any of that. Of course, there can be really good skills development in dedicated lessons, in dedicated programs. But as you said, Kathy, it's the everyday stuff that matters. Every single social interaction, every single interaction that you have in a school setting, outside the school gates, all of that is data for a child, right? All of that is feeding into that child's view of who are they? What are other people like? What is this world like? And so it's up to us to try and think, Are we managing those situations in the best possible way? Are we creating the context that we think is going to really nurture the next generation to have the approach, the mental health, the well-being, the caring, the relationships that we want them to have? And I think it comes back to the the word that you used, Kathy, earlier on. Are we enabling young people to be the best agents that they can be? Well, listen, you and I could talk for about three hours and it'd probably be <laughs> incredibly enjoyable, but I know that we're, we're short of time. But thank you so much for you know having this conversation with me. I'm going to be signposting everyone to all of your fantastic work, which we've got multiple pages on here. And I'm hoping we can stay in touch, Robin, and think through more of these issues potentially at another point. Definitely. I'd love to do that. Thank you so much for having me, Kathy. It was a great pleasure to chat with you. Thank you. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.